Hello, dear listeners. Thank you to those of you who've tuned in these past four August A plus mashups and listening to uh, you know these archived interviews that we have, the favorites of this year. And if you're a regular listener, we imagine that you're ready to get back to the show, and so are we, right, Grant? Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that it's you know that we're kicking off year four next week. And we have a fantastic lineup to get rolling with all of you. Um, so tune in. And for me, it feels like, you know, I mean, November is basically here. And NaNoWriMo is right <laughs> around the corner <laughs> in my mind. Uh, so it's coming soon. And we're looking forward to getting you prepped for that and generally continuing the writing inspiration into this new season. Yeah, and some publishing inspiration too. This season, we are adding something we're calling book trends to the show. And so listen for that. And we encourage you letting us know what you're thinking about or what you want to know about. You can email us anytime at hello at rightmindedpodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you. And meanwhile, here's our final A plus mashup featuring interviews with Lori Holtz Anderson and Marie Liu, the best of YA. All right, everybody, we are back with today's guest, Lori Holtz Anderson, who is a New York Times bestselling author known for tackling tough subjects with humor and sensitivity. Two of her books, Speak and Chains, were National Book Award finalists, and Chains was also shortlisted for the UK's Carnegie Medal. She was selected by the American Library Association for the Margaret a Edwards Award for her significant contribution to young adult literature. And Lori has also been honored for her battles for intellectual freedom by the National Coalition Against Censorship and the National Council of Teachers of English, which is very important. And I'm excited to ask you a question about that, Lori. Uh, you've also been a NaNoWriMo participant and you wrote a fabulous pep talk for NaNoWriMo back in 2009. And you're a member of Reigns National Leadership Council uh, and you speak out about sexual violence. We're we're so thrilled to have you, Lori. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited. Well, good. Well, let's get right into it. Your novel, Speak, was published in its original form, uh, which I guess we could call early YA because YA wasn't really the genre that it is today back when you published it uh, more than two decades ago. And it set a precedent for this kind of book, which is a truth-telling book. And in your case, you dared to speak to real teen experience. So we'll unpack that in just a second. But in the years since its publication, it's been a movie, a graphic novel, it's been translated into foreign languages, and it's an audio book. So my question is just around what this book has meant to you over all of these years, and it so needed to reach readers, and it has. So what has it been like to know that so many millions of minds have absorbed this story through so many different mediums? Uh, honestly, it's quite baffling. <laughs> it, um, you need to know that I never thought the book would be published. Uh, mm. When I wrote it, uh, I had published a few picture books, I worked as a freelance journalist, uh, and I'd written a lot of dreadfully bad books that were rejected constantly. But the idea for the book came uh, literally uh, in a mad dream, and uh, the, the book re reflects my emotional experience as a survivor of rape, but it's very heavily fictionalized. It's not what I went through, uh, except for some of the feels. So it was, if anything, I think I wrote it because I couldn't afford therapy. 
Hmm. Um, and it really helped me find the courage to look at what I had been through, recognize the impact that being, um, having PTSD and depression, the impact that it had on my life. And to be honest with you, my publishers didn't have many hopes for it either. You know, they, I think they printed 3000 copies and, uh, you know, this is before the internet was invented pretty much. And it really was the incredible hand-to-hand work of educators and librarians handing it to kids uh, who they thought it might connect with that, that breathed life into the book itself. And then all of a sudden it blew up and everyone was reading it. And the book definitely, the writing of the book and, and beginning to do the work that I needed to do to get healthier, that was very important to me. But more important almost uh, is having met so many people and being able to hear the stories of other survivors, but also hear the stories of, of other teens and, you know, former teens now called adults who had a secret or who had a bad thing happen to them. And the book is, you know, part of their own process of, of healing and growing. And those kinds of conversations for the last 20 years have really taught me an awful lot about life and a great deal about how stories can connect us in a way that nothing else can. So true. And uh, Lori, it's been, you know, as Brooke mentioned, over 20 years since Speak was published. And uh, just so listeners know, uh, Speak is the story of Melinda, a freshman in high school who stopped speaking after she's sexually assaulted. And now you've published a memoir in verse, Shout, about that experience, but that's written in a different voice, a different form, a different genre. And Brooke and I are constantly talking about the blurry lines between fiction and memoir. So I am curious about the ways in which the two books are are different, but also interconnected. Oh, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm a different person than I was when I wrote Speak. Uh, uh, Quite a different person. And it's interesting. I've been so fortunate for a couple of decades to get invitations to speak to um, schools and universities, not just in the U.S., but in other countries, too, and to model what a survivor is, but also model. I think this is what I try to do in all my books. I hope my stories give people um, can open a, a doorway to how to talk about hard things, right? Because I seem to be incapable of writing anything fluffy, although I like to read fluffy books. And no matter how hard I try, it always winds up being dark and hard because life sucks an awful lot. And that seems to be what I'm drawn to. But what happened uh, in 2018, as we started to hear stories about Harvey Weinstein, and you know, there's been a real cultural shift in the last 20 years when when Speak came out, um, all victims of sexual violence seemed to be blamed, and there was very little discussion of it. Now people are beginning to feel confident in understanding that it's the perpetrator who deserves the blame and shame, and it, people are feeling empowered to talk about the bad things that they've been through. And I realized that I had been so changed by what I, uh, those conversations that I had had. You should know that when they started to invite me to go to schools, I was such a shy person. I was so nervous about having to speak in public. Um, and so I, and I thought as a writer, if I could call myself that back then, I was supposed to talk about things like metaphors and setting <laughs> and no teenager worth their salt 
gave a damn about that. They want, you know, so I'd give this like really boring talk and we'd get to Q&A and then the hands would go up with the real questions and the real questions were, Miss, did this happen to you? Hmm. Miss, why didn't you tell anybody? And, and so pretty much everything that you read in Shout, which is, um, it's a memoir, but it's told in free verse. I really wanted to kind of push myself creatively. Uh, are the kinds of things that I've been talking to teen audiences about for all these years. Um, but I, I, I set them down on paper because I, I thought that maybe after 20 years, we would be much farther uh, ahead than we actually are as a culture. Mm. And that's why it's called Shout, because I'm tired of just speaking. Yeah, I mean, that certainly resonated with me. And I'm glad you brought that up about the Me Too movement, because that was actually my next question. I mean, obviously, this was long before Me Too. We still have all these problems, but the culture is significantly different now. And there are so many survivor memoirs as compared to when you wrote Speak, which, of course, was fiction. But I still work with a lot of memoirists who are terrified to share their stories of assault or being a survivor. It's also hugely important and cathartic at the same time. So I want to ask you about 20 plus years ago. I mean, you said you couldn't afford therapy, you know, and so maybe that's what it was about. But in all honesty, I mean, what was the thing that pushed you to write a book about that experience and then try to get it published when it was like well before all of these other stories that are coming out in the way they are today. My daughters became teenagers and my daughters Mm -hmm. got to the age that I was when I was so wounded and attacked. And I realized that, uh, and and it's interesting because you, when you look back 20 years after you write something, it's really clear what led up to it. But if you had asked me at the time, I would have said, oh, I had this weird nightmare and I just wanted to write about it. And, but clearly looking back and looking at some of my journal entries from that time, um, it was, it was because, you know, in my role as a mother, I realized I, I have to do something about this. I have to figure out how to have these conversations. And at the time, I, I never thought I would tell anybody what I had been through. Never. And that's if, if for people who uh, have something from their own life, either that they might want to write a memoir. And if they're feeling that panic, first of all, it's super hard to write when you're having those kinds of intense negative emotions like panic or fear. So give yourself permission to fictionalize it for a draft you know, and see what that feels like. Uh, that worked out very well for me. And even if Speak had never been published, even if it had never become, you know, a, a well-known book, that experience of writing that in the fictionalized version was incredibly helpful to me as, as a human being. So you don't have to write a tell-all memoir if you don't want to. Also, I want to dig into the NaNoWriMo archives uh, and go way back to 2009 uh, the way back, I guess we could go with the way back internet or something to find this, but uh, you wrote this great pep talk um, that I think we're going to relate this to the storytelling circle that you mentioned. You said, writing fiction is a bold and brave thing to do. You have to stand up to the critics in your home and school and the critics in your head and tell them to shush. You have to believe that you have permission from the universe to create. You have to be willing to fail, mess up, make mistakes, go down the wrong path, be confused, feel inadequate, and then still sit down and you know, right. So I'm curious, uh, just to revisit that, since you're also a memoirist now, is the advice the same? And 
you know, maybe since we're talking about advice, uh, what would be the new best advice that you'd offer writers today? Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that. And this is a great time to ask me that because like many people, uh, this year has really messed with me. This has been the most difficult year, I think, of all of our lives, anyone alive on the planet right now. And for the first time, um, there was there were a few months ago, I could barely read just because of my own struggles with mental health. I was a hot mess. But slowly, you know, I've been doing all the healthy things and went back, you know, found, found somebody to talk to in a professional setting, got really good about eating well and, and getting outside for walks. And then my ability to read came back. And then now slowly my ability to write has come back. So I wasn't, didn't write for months. So I feel again, I mean, I think I've written some, I don't even know how many books, a lot of books. And every time I sit down to write another book, I'm starting from scratch all over again. So for those of uh, my fellow writers out there who might hear this, everything you're feeling is valid and you're going to write despite some of those scary negative feelings. Um, I hope that you're also having positive feelings, right? Because you, you, you have this desire, you have this burning need to craft uh, a story. So I, I think the thing that I've learned about this year I've been talking about it for a long time, but I really felt it this year is the need for us as creative people to be gentle with each other and with ourselves. I sometimes say when I'm giving writing workshops, you should never say to yourself as a writer things that you wouldn't say to a five-year-old whom you love. Right. So if a five-year-old that, that, you know, you're a a child that you love very much comes to you with uh, a drawing, you would never say, wow, that's a piece of crap. No, one's never (laughs) going to hang that. You're never going to get that sold. You're wasting your time. I think you should be an engineer. Why aren't you focusing on your math problems? No, you wouldn't say that. You would say, that's amazing. Oh my gosh, please tell (laughs) me the story that that you made in that painting. And you encourage that kid and, and you have permission. And, and I really hope everybody does this. What would happen if you were kind to yourself and you were gentle with yourself about your fears and you kept trying? Um, the other thing that I've learned is I think keeping a small journal uh, outside of your writing to sometimes just talk about the writing process and the barriers you're running into in the, in the course of plotting or character development or whatever, that can be helpful. You, a journal like that can be a roadmap through your book. Uh, and then when you go to write the next book, you'll have that roadmap and you go, oh, yes, here I am again. It's the Valley of Despair. It always happens around chapter 10. <laughs> I know what's going on. So helpful. Thanks, Lori. Yeah, thanks, Lori. I'm going to renew uh, intentions to be more gentle to myself. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Welcome back, everyone. I'm super excited about today's guest, Marie Lu. Marie Lu is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Legend Trilogy, which now actually includes a fourth book, Rebel. And she's also the author of the Young Elites Trilogy, the Warcross series, and a new series that just kicked off, uh, Sky Hunter. She graduated from the University of Southern California and after graduating, worked in the video game industry, working for Disney Interactive Studios as a flash artist. And I want everyone to know that Marie is also a member of the NaNoWriMo board. Welcome, Marie. Thank you so much, Grant. Absolutely. Yeah, this is such a treat to have you. 
And I read an interesting piece about your beginnings as a writer, where you said you you stapled together your first novels when you were a very young child. And and my daughter was an obsessive book stapler, so I'm really curious to see where that leads with her writing life. And but I thought, like, just so viewers can get to know about you as a writer, can you tell us a bit about your writing journey from from early stapling of novels to publishing novels? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that your daughter does that. Um, <laughs> that makes me feel really nostalgic. I, yeah, I used to do that all the time as a kid. Um, I came over to the States from China when I was five with my parents and um, had a lot of free time on my hands because my parents were working a lot. So, um, so I would just like, I would go with my mom sometimes to her workplace where she was a waitress at the you know, the local restaurant. And I would just make up stories for myself. And um, my mom would tell me to, you know, start learning English and memorize words and put them into sentences. And so technically, that was how I started writing. I, um, I had just had to learn the language. And eventually, when I picked up enough words to know what to do with them, I realized that I just kind of enjoyed that process of of writing these paragraphs. So I would spend, I just remember spending these long summers, um, just in a room with like paper and just writing stories. And, uh, and I loved it. It was, it was incredibly fun for me. Uh, so I was tabled together little booklets for myself and write my name on them and pretend that they were, you know, real books. I saw an article in the paper about a 13 year old girl who had gotten her first book deal uh, with Simon and Schuster, I believe. Mm. And I, that was the moment when I first realized like, Oh, uh, real people write books. Like this is a profession that people have. Um, and also, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. Like this girl was 13 and I was 13. So I was like, oh my God, she got a book deal. Maybe I can be a writer. Um, Cause I loved writing. That was like my thing. So from that point on, I began to write more seriously. And that was kind of when I started hearing about NaNoWriMo and my friend and I, uh, and Julie, actually, uh, Julie Sue, who is another board member on NaNoWriMo's uh, board team. We, we would nano our books um, throughout high school. Uh, and I just, I just remember that was the first time I ever finished a novel was when I participated in NaNoWriMo. So um, I remember writing four different manuscripts uh, before I actually got a book deal, but that was through a period of like 12 years where I would write one and then send it out. I think I was like 14 or 15 when I sent out my first one and it was awful. Of course, I thought it was great. Uh, <laughs> it was just like a knockoff of Lord of the Rings, but I sent it out to like a hundred agents and got wow. like a hundred rejection letters. <laughs> uh, tried again uh, when I was a little bit older and then managed to get an agent. And then my agent sent it out and got back, you know, rejections from pretty much every publisher you could think of. Um, wrote a third one and my agent hated it. And, you know, we parted ways. So I was back at square one and, so I was going through college while all this was happening. And I, I think I, I stopped writing for a couple of years in college because I was feeling dejected by rejection letters. Um, but I think when you're a writer, you can't really stay away that much, you know, that long. And eventually I started writing again. And um, at this point, I was already working in video games. And I remember just writing early in the morning and during lunch hour and stuff and wrote a fourth book that got me a new agent and that one didn't sell either. Um, so while that one was getting rejected, I wrote legend, which is my first published book. And that one was the one that finally broke through. So, and that hit at a time when, you know, dystopia was huge and the hunger games was on its way up and legend qualified as that category of dystopia, of YA dystopia. And I remember that the sale happened so quickly at that point, it happened within a week and 
And I just remember thinking like, well, you know, it took like a week and 12 years <laughs> to get to that point. Uh, so, so that was how it happened. I was thinking that's such a journey that you're talking about. And I, I wanted to touch upon the video game industry and this long training that you had from your upbringing. It's kind of like you had dual training grounds because I'm curious about the video game industry and how it might have impacted your series. Um, I know your Warcross series is actually about a game called Warcross that has really taken the world by storm. So uh, is writing a novel like playing a video game in some respects or has video gaming influenced your writing? That's a really great question. Um, and I think that it, it, it definitely influenced me. I worked for maybe five or six years in video games. And then before that, I was a pretty regular gamer. You know, I love games in the way that I love books and you know, art and all kinds of creative things. And I think that I, I was always a very visual thinker. So even when I'm writing books, I tend to see the images in my head as if they were like it's a movie playing out or um, or like a 3D environment or a map and I'm a character walking through it. So in that sense, I think I was always meant to be drawn to games just as I'm drawn to writing books. It's just the way that I think. And so I I think it was a natural match for me to go into games for a while. And I think working in that environment helped me solidify some of my the ways that I think creatively. And I think that all creative endeavors all like they all kind of have a thing in common which is story and, and novel writing is kind of the most ancient version of that um, it is just the the pared down story it is just the story the words and and then from there i think branch every creative media so they all tell stories in their own ways you know fashion tells a story and movies tell a story and music tells a story and Video games tell story as well. Um, some games less than others, depending on the type of game, you know, if it's a puzzle game or whether it's a narrative game like RPGs. But the games that I felt the most drawn to were the ones that had that strong narrative core. So it was interesting to see story portrayed in video games because it's it's in some ways like reading a book, um, especially if you play in a certain like story mode, you're just, you're going through, but at the same time, you're, it's, it's a type of story that it immerses the, um, the player in a way that makes them feel like they're in control of what happens in the story. Um, even if you're kind of being guided down a path that inevitably you will get to the end of, um, you know, you'll get to the same end as everybody else. There, there's a little bit of leeway. And, and so in that sense, video games are a little bit more collaborative and you know with the player with the audience um but at the same time you, you can kind of do the same thing with novels you know there were the choose your own adventure books which i loved when i was a kid and that in itself was a way of gaming as well so i think a lot of these creative media have blurred edges where you know they can cross into each other and be inspired by each other and and i love that about creativity um, that they can all draw from each other no matter what branch they're on Maria, I love this this concept of story being the binder of all arts, and I love everything you said about video games. So I think you should you should write a book about this. Actually, <laughs> I really want to read it. But I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about dystopian writing, dystopian fiction, and legend coming out, kind of right when you know uh, Hunger Games and other books were were emerging. Um, and I remember the last time I interviewed you for a NaNoWriMo webcast, an attendee uh, put this question in the comments about why you write dystopian fiction. And she asked, does writing dystopian fiction, you know, bring you hope in any way? And I'm especially curious about this since you have a young son and must think a lot about the future of the world he'll grow up in. 
I do. Um, and I think that's a very important question for for all writers to be considering, not, not even just, you know, dystopian writers. I think for me, dystopia is hopeful in that dystopia is the exaggerated funhouse mirror that we hold up to society to exaggerate some societal ill. And we blow that up and exaggerate it into this fictional world where that thing becomes the one element that has corrupted society or collapsed it. Um, and But in many ways, most dystopian fiction is nonfiction. Like a lot of the things that we portray in dystopian fiction has happened in history or has already happened or, you know, is happening right now. So I think the hopeful part of writing dystopia is that you can't move forward and figure out how to solve something until you look it in the eye. And I like the dystopia stops to examine these things that are wrong with our society because that's really the only way you can move forward. You know, you, you can't just bury your head in the sand and expect these problems to go away. We have to be able to see them. And I like that fiction is a, is a vehicle to help people do that. And I think that's changed a lot in the last, you know, definitely in the last four years. Um, I think that we've had a bit of a wake up call, especially in the U.S., um, to all of the problems that exist in our country. And it's a painful reckoning, but at the same time necessary. And I think that because of this awakening, a lot of us, myself included, see our fiction in different ways now. I think we have a clear sense of why we write what we write, um, what aspects we want to talk about, like what we want to draw attention to, and what we want our readers to, to keep in mind long after they close the book. And, you know, Grant, you mentioned my son, and it's true that I've, I feel like my, my, my brain has changed a little bit sitting a lot since I've had my, my kid, and he's almost two. And I think before I had him, I always, I wrote for myself. You know, I wrote for um, the things that I wanted to see fixed or the, the things that kept me awake at night. And now that I have him, I find myself more and more looking at my fiction and thinking about, you know, someday he might read this. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in some ways I'm like, oh gosh, should I put in a romance scene? But then in other senses, <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is, this is something that, that um, he as a, as a young adult may someday pick up. And that has kind of changed my perspective on the level of responsibility that that we have in putting out, you know, work for our audience. And it's something that I was always kind of aware of just because I write for young adults and I meet a lot of young adults when I'm on the road. But I think it really it didn't really hit home until I had my my son. And now I think about it all the time. I'm curious, Marie, because you recently extended what was known as the Legend Trilogy series into a fourth book, which came out last fall, several years after the series was supposedly finished. So one question is what brought you back to the series and is this series really ever done? That's a great question. And I think the answer probably changes for every writer, depending on why they go back to a series or don't go back to a series. Um, for me, I... I knew it at the time when Champion finished. It was 2014, or no, 2013, I think, when Champion came out. I'm not actually sure now. Oh, gosh. Um, I think it was 2013. And the world was a, was felt like a different place to me. And at that time, I remember when I finished Champion, because Champion has a very open ending. 
I kind of left it for the readers to decide what exactly happens to the main characters. And at the time, I was okay with that ending. And I thought, you know, I like open endings. I like that I don't always know, you know, everything. And I just wanted to leave it on this vague sense of hope and let the readers fill in the blanks for themselves. There were always other stories associated with those characters and with the world of legend that um, I thought, you know, maybe in the future I would tackle it. But at the time, I was okay with that ending of the series and I was satisfied with it. And then 2016 happened, and then a bunch of terrible things afterwards. And during that time, I was also getting a lot of emails from readers who were just like, what happens? What happens? Are they happy at the end? Are they happy at the end? You know, what happens to these characters? And I began to realize that I wanted closure for my own main characters. I wanted to know that they were going to be okay. And I think that maybe some of the calls from my young readers emailing me were also wanting that sense of closure and wanting to know that something in this crazy world would be okay. And so I, I began to get this sense of like, you know what, I need, I need this closure. So I went back and I wrote um, Rebel uh, as a fourth book to explore some elements that I, you know, had left hanging in the, in the original series, but mostly to give that closure um, of the main characters for my readers and for myself. Like I, I had this feeling of like, you know, there's so much in this world that I have very little control over, but in my story, I am God and I have the power to make anything happen. And I am going to make the, I'm going to make sure that this happy thing happens and that these characters who deserve good things happening to them, get the good thing that happens to them. And it was kind of my, my need to fulfill that, that, that hope in in the midst of all the chaos that was happening uh, at the time. Uh, in closing, we just have to note how obviously very busy and productive you are. And I'm honestly astonished by the number of books you've published in the last 10 years. So we just wanted to end on what's next. Well, thank you so much. That's so kind. Um, I am currently working on Skyhunter 2, uh, which is coming out this fall. So that's taking up most of my time. And then I'm working on two other projects that haven't been announced yet, but I'm really excited about it. I'm kind of in that sort of honeymoon. This is perfect in my head phase at the moment, so I'm going to stay there for a second. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much all I can say about them, but I'm really excited about them, and I hope that I get to share it soon. Cool. Awesome. That's wonderful. Good luck, and, and thanks for being with us. Yeah, Marie, I can't wait to read your next novels. Thank you guys so much. This was so much fun. Thanks again, everyone. We appreciate your support so much. Without listeners like you, there would be no show. So thanks for keeping us going strong into our fourth year. Brooke, I was thinking we're kind of like seniors now. <laughs> One might even say we're the big man and big woman on campus and all that. We, should we say that? Uh, yeah, 100%. Congratulations. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, honestly, it gives you a little perspective, doesn't it, about what a blip four years really is, you know, whether that's high school or college or four years of podcasting. But hey, you know, I will take it. Being the big woman on campus this year, I can totally get into that role. Great. Just try not to get senioritis. <laughs> and remember... We have to take our GREs in the spring. All the more incentive to keep the inspiration coming. Uh, we have to inspire ourselves after all. Yeah, I tend to find most of my inspiration in collaboration with others these days. So I invite listeners to send us show ideas and feedback at hello at rightmindedpodcast.com. 